happy Thursday. This is Brandon Bustide, and thanks for joining our latest episode of Bold Leaders in Learning. Today, I'm delighted to have a future of work expert and recent author of The Adaptation Advantage, Heather McGowan, with us. I ran into Heather uh, earlier this year at a conference. She is a, a highly uh, sought-after keynote speaker on this subject, and was really impressed with, with really everything she had to say, including a lot of the visuals and frameworks that she used in her speech, uh, all of which are uh, all throughout her book, which I just had a chance to read this past week. But, um, you know, Heather, when we first met, uh, I'd asked you the question, you know, how did, how did you become a world-renowned expert on the future of work? You know, what's the, what's the career trajectory for, for getting there? I would love to just have you start by describing a bit of your, bit of your background and how you ended up in the place that you're in right now. So yeah, I often joke with people that I, uh, I filled out an application for a job for future work strategist. Nah, just kidding. Um, no, I made it up. I made the title up uh, because I needed a title to operate under. Um, I found myself seeing a disconnect because I, you know, I was working as a consultant and I had university clients and corporate clients. Corporate clients were not getting the kind of talent that they needed. Uh, university clients didn't understand the challenges of the world in which they operated, even at, at their own business model, but also the product they were putting out, which is uh, educated individuals. And so I started explaining how I saw the disconnect to both of them. And um, out of some frustration that I found the only people talking about the future of work were talking about how technology were, was going to make um, humans useless, I started writing. And my second article on LinkedIn went about a little viral, 100,000 people read it in about 24 hours. And I started getting speaking requests all over the world. First one was in Australia. That recording went on YouTube, that went viral. Uh, and then I started getting more requests. So that was from 2014 to 2018. And then now it's full time, it's all I do. Well, that's fascinating and, uh, and certainly well-deserved uh, recognition for your, your ideas and your thinking on this. Um, you know, you've just, you've just published a book uh, it'll be flipped around on the page for everybody, but the adaptation advantage and, um, you know, you, uh, well, first t tell us about the book, just, you know, the overall, uh, you know, backdrop and, and kind of major thesis around it. And then I've got a, a bunch of questions that flow from, uh, from my reading of it too, that I'd like to ask you. So. Sure. So, um, the book was in part, um, some of my writings, people were like, well, you should write a book. And I started looking at writing a book. And then um, as my speaking ramped up more and more, I started to pay attention to what the audiences were asking for. So I would blow through 40 frameworks in 25 minutes and people's hair would be blown back and they would say, I need to digest that, do you have a book? And so I started listening to what aspects of the talk were really um, hitting home with the audiences, what, were, what was giving them pause, what was making them think and, and shape the book around that. So the, it's divided into three parts. The first part is, we call it adapting at the speed of change. Chris Shipley is my co-author. And we're just talking about the speed of, at the time we wrote the book, which was prior to the virus, technology-driven change, globalization, ways in which we're already adapting and may not realize it to show we have the capability to adapt. Second section on what does it mean to an individual uh, with a lot of focus on uh, identity, particular occupational identity traps, which I, I know we're gonna talk about in a little bit. And then the last section of it is, how do you lead in this new normal? Because much of work in the future is going to be on learning tours. So it's a, that's not driving productivity anymore. It's inspiring human potential. It takes an entirely different approach. So that's the overall. And the, and the point of the book is, is three things. Um, future work is learning and adaptation. 
Um, to do that, you have to let go of the way you've always done it, as, as well as, and perhaps even more importantly, who you think you are. And then leading in this new normal requires establishing trust, psychological safety, and a comfort with vulnerability and failure, which is a lot for leaders to take on versus where they've been. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And yep. you know, I'd love to start with one of the big points you make in the book is that we have to individually and, and organizationally let go of uh, what you kind of describe as antiquated notions, right? Like the idea of asking people, what do you do? Uh, and that identity. Um, so just you know, tell me a little bit more about that. It was a very intriguing part of what you, what you kind of put out there. Yeah, so the, the, the paradigm we're coming out of was is uh, education. And that's just the first third of your life career, which is a well-structured escalator, retirement, which was designed back when we were going to die a year or less later. And success in education was, do we codify and tra transfer the right skills to get you on the ladder? That was the job of education, and it was done. And now it's learn, leverage, and longevity. And in that learn and leverage and longevity are all overlapping bands. So learn and leverage is a signal that learning, one, is continuous as opposed to education, which implies an end state. Uh, leverage instead of work, because it signals work and learning are a combined act. And longevity, because we're making the greatest loops in human longevity at the same time, we've got the greatest velocity of change, which makes for longer, more volatile career arcs. So we're, we have this idea, we ask little kids, what are you going to be when you grow up? Absurd, when you think about it. We ask university students to pick a major before they've stepped foot on campus. Uh, the only study I've seen on this, which is a, from the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, found that 27% of people work in the field of their undergraduate major, yet we're myopically focused on it. We tell you to pick a major and then not take anything outside of it. And if you stop and think about it, that means your future and all the debt you take to, to get there is based upon what you told, were told you were good at in high school. I guarantee you I would not be on this Zoom if that was the limits of my future. Um, we get exposed to things in high school and there are huge social mobility implications of that. So we're cutting off a tremendous amount of uh, human potential. Uh, and then the idea of asking each other what we do, it's just a conversation starter that we've created a habit out of. I don't think we mean to do it as much as we do, um, but studies out of the UK, and I know Brandon, you and I talked about it when I saw you in um, Santa Fe, have found that job loss takes longer to recover from than the loss of a primary relationship. And many people never recover to the same level of well-being because we've created this, this factory pipeline to a future identity that either is impermanent or may not be there. So instead, we've got to focus on connecting people to what motivates them, what drives them, their purpose, their curiosity. We've got to set up an expectation of lifelong learning and um, connect them to systems that allow them to do that. So instead, why don't you just ask somebody, tell me about yourself. What are you interested in? There are other ways you can have open-ended questions, but we keep reinforcing an occupational identity that's a few decades old at best. Yeah, and you've touched on a number of things, right? You've got the, the longevity issue, right? People are living longer. Uh, the year, you know, my daughter was born, she's, she's turning 11 this June, but uh, a third of all babies born that year are projected to live to 100, right? And if they live to 100, uh, there's a high likelihood that they could be working through age 80 or early 80s. Um, and so, you know, that extends what we think of as a traditional work life by 15, 20 years, right? So we have that. And then, you know, we also have just the, the pace at which the world is moving, right? It's rapidly accelerating, you know, and that's driven by a number of forces, certainly technological, but, you know, our, you know, our assumption that, you know, we were magically anointed with a bachelor's degree or an MBA 40 years ago, and it still has perfect relevance to what I'm doing 40 years later, like that's like, who, like who, 
that doesn't even sound like a believable statement, right? So, right. you know, this, so, you know, the, the, the lifelong learning thing, though, I, I want to pause on this uh, real quick and get your thoughts on it. You know, I've, I, uh, one of the studies I was involved with, with Ga at Gallup during my days at Gallup was trying to look for signal strength that universities actually create lifelong learners. And, and the reason why I went down that path was because it turns out lifelong learning is the most commonly used phrase in college mission statements in the United States. Now, I think it's a great uh, ambition, right? It's a worthy ambition. But you say, okay, uh, so how are you creating lifelong learners, right? Like, and, and you know, you'll get the typical answer. Oh, we want them to think critically and to learn how to learn. And there's a lot of great responses to that. But the evidence that we've done that is really thin. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how, like, in all your thinking about lifelong learning, because there's the other point you raised too, there are people who are resistant based on their identity. Mm -hmm. to ever think that they could do something else. And I was reminded of a video documentary I watched where there were workers getting laid off from Carrier in uh, Indiana. And they were asking, you know, these were Fighting. mainly, you know, men who were being interviewed in the documentary uh, and, you know, probably middle 50s age-wise. And, and they were asked the question, you know, what are you going to do now that you've lost your job? You know, are you going to go back to school or try and retrain? And uh, one after another, said, no, I'd just rather not work, right? Like they were so stuck that like, if I can't do this job, which has been my identities for so long, I'd rather just throw in the towel. How do we get over all this stuff, right? I mean, are lifelong learners just naturally born or can we actually, can we actually train this? Can we invite people into a system where lifelong learning is more natural as opposed to such a, you know, such a, you know, a, a difficult thing for people to wrap their heads around? Yeah, that notion that you just brought up is so central to what we talk about that we actually toyed with calling the book Stuck at Work, because mm -hmm. we think so many people are stuck in an identity, stuck in a process, in a way of doing things, and only seeing themselves across, mm -hmm. you know, one dimension. And it isn't just, uh, we tend to think of folks who may have been left behind in terms of technology and their unwillingness, but I was just on a call, uh, a virtual talk, and the discussion with a a biotech company and they are were telling me you know we spend so much to get our expertise and you know these kinds of organizations a phd is entry level for for the organization that you get this expertise identity that you're unwilling to relinquish so it's all of us at every level whether you went to university or you went all the way through university um, I think we need to start uh, in kindergarten. I think we need to stop asking kids what they want to be with when they grow up in, in a fixed way. Um, I think we shouldn't ask kids what they're curious about. Um, I think we have to encourage them to learn and experiment um, and not get tied down to a singular identity, especially a singular identity as a goal. And that start making it easier to experiment and envision yourself in multiple places if you're not setting your targets on a single point in space that may or may not be there. Yeah, that's helpful. We, we just got a question from the audience that kind of relates directly to that. You know, they, they ask, Heather, what, what advice do you have for high school seniors um, when uh, in thinking like what and where to study? Like, how would you how would you give advice uh, to them differently than, the, you know, the, 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 the advice they're probably getting from parents and from societal messages right now? I would say don't assume you have to do it in four or six years. Don't assume you have to do it when you're 18 years old. Uh, I think more folks need to do gap years, uh, whether they're 
um, you have the resources to travel or it's uh, a year of service. So I think that would be great right now. We're gonna need that uh, in the United States at least. Um, so think about your learning as a continuous journey, not this thing you've got to get done um, because it may take you a while. Listen, I have an undergraduate degree in design. I have an MBA. My career could not have looked less clear to most people around me, but when I put it all together, it makes a lot of sense. I just took a circuitous journey to get here. I mean, this was not my end goal ever. Um, and so let those young people find what it is they're interested in. There's sort of this belief, if you don't go to university right out of high school, you're not going to go. I don't know that that's really true anymore. I think we've pushed that on, on folks. Uh, be willing to explore. Be willing to make your own major. Don't worry about what you study in undergraduate. And if you're going to be in, if you know you want to be in the sciences, you probably have to have a sciences undergraduate. There are some things, but for the most part, listen internally uh, and don't listen as much externally. Yeah, there's great points there. You know, one of the one of the stats that came up in some of the research I was involved in is that uh, about four out of 10 college graduates in the United States regret what they majored in. If they could go back and do it again, knowing what they know, whatever point they're in their life, they would they would major in something else. And I think one of the other things you brought up in your book was this evolution of like uh, moving from the T, you know, from the individual siloed expert to the T-shaped individual. And then you talk about I think transdisciplinary world yep. is what you use. Just tell us about that because I think it relates to like, regardless what you major in, right? It's the multidisciplinary, the transdisciplinary aspects where we're all going to have to, you know, build more muscles uh, as I'll call it. But like, t tell us about your concept around transdisciplinary. Yeah. So the, the T-shaped thinker, if you don't know what it was, was an idea that came up, um, at least it came into my uh, awareness in the early nineties. It might, might precede that. And the, the world in which I, that I saw it in was probably the context in which I was working. So the I-shaped thinker is sort of the single discipline, single discipline identity. I work here, throw it over the wall to the next function and in the process of making some sort of unit of value. And the T-shaped thinker was, I still have a core identity, but I can work with the adjacency. So the top of the T was sort of the, the breadth of your ability to coordinate. Now I was working product design at the time. So it was marketing could go to engineering as well. And you could, you know, complete the, the product you were developed. Um, and, the, and the idea I think now is more of an exception thinker where the individual is more of a, um, a conductor because you're not only coordinating different disciplines and functions, you're also coordinating between technologies and humans. Yep. So it's a combination of sort of like, how do you look at a problem, find it and frame it in an evergreen way, and then decide how to address it, whether it's technology solutions, technology and human solutions, uh, different disciplines. It's a, it's a different mindset and it's, it's very difficult to wrap your head around, but I think that's where we're headed. Yeah. And, you know, back to the, you know, don't feel like you have to do it all at once and, and also don't think you're done if right. you've gotten over one of these things, right? Like there, there was an article I wrote a couple of weeks ago in Forbes about the concept of what I call evergreen degrees, right? And on one hand, you know, our society is so locked into the concept of degrees that it's probably going to be a long time before, you know, there's, you know, any, any kind of substantial change in our view of that, right? We still value degrees, even though they might not be perfectly suited for the world we're heading into. But the idea of an evergreen degree was the notion that, you know, you enroll and maybe along the way you accomplish a traditional degree, like an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree, whatever. But the idea would be that, you know, you're in an evergreen degree program you are constantly being upskilled or reskilled on different things. So I use the example of an MBA program. I might go 
get my MBA, you know, accomplish, you know, reach that flag that I can knock over of actually getting the MBA diploma in my wall. But if I'm in, if I'm enrolled in an evergreen MBA, I might take two courses a year that are keeping me fresh and relevant. So maybe it's cybersecurity for senior executives or it's data science and analytics for non-analytical managers, right? You could think about how a university could curate an ongoing set of learning, right? That was, you know, pedagogically sound and linked over time, but relevant in the moment, relevant on a long-term basis. And so, I, you know, wh whether that's the right idea or not, right? We've got to create new constructs and, and pathways for this lifelong learning that feels more comfortable to people, right? Because like, I'm like, oh, well, I've always been told I should go to college. So to, you know, to say to somebody now, you know, maybe don't worry about that. That's like really, really discomforting. But if you say, well, you know, there's this evergreen degree program and here's how it works. I've been trying to stretch my thinking around what higher ed can do in this realm. And I want to go to corporate in a second. But what, what would be your recommendation for how higher ed delivers better on its uh, stated mission of lifelong learning? What would, what would your magic wand be in the higher ed landscape? Well, one of the, the universities I worked for, um, I developed an exper experimental first year where you went in just saying, I don't know. And um, you explored taking intro courses to everything, which in one form or fashion served different credential requirements. So you graduated still on time or earlier, depending on your, your trajectory. So more of that kind of stuff. I've also pushed with uh, some other universities and I just throw it out there, anybody wants to take it, um, th that we should have uh, a degree that's really just preparing you for this world. So it's a sort of skinny core of business. So you understand how business models work because business models are changing faster than ever. So gone are the days you can have a job at a company but not know how the company creates value. Uh, a skinny core in some form of behavior because let's face it, we're all helping other humans adapt to change. So it could be psychology, sociology, anthropology, depending on the role you're gonna work in. Um, a skinny core in um, some sort of design thinking, so you know how to find and frame problems. Yeah. And then a skinny core in some form of technology, knowing it's gonna be the first of everything. So maybe it's data Linux, cybersecurity or something. So that's your entry point. So you get your first job in cybersecurity, but you got the ability to understand business, understand people, understand how to find and frame problems. And from there, you may get a graduate degree, you may continue to take courses, but you could go on any trajectory because you've got the basics that allow you, they're tools of navigation, really. Yeah, those are really, I mean, those are incredibly thoughtful ideas. Uh, well, you know, I, I would certainly endorse some of that, that thinking in higher ed and, um, and in your idea of kind of the uh, experimental year, right, where you can kind of, you know, play around. I mean, that, that's an interesting concept. We, one of the innovations we um, announced just a few weeks ago was what we're calling boost year. And you know, it's the idea of a, a full semester, a full year between high school and college, where it's not a gap year. Uh, it was actually designed to kind of reinvent the internship, where the whole idea is students get to interact with people in different roles, right, across different types of industries, really get a sense of what's happening, right, how, how teams work together, right, and then work on multiple projects that are designed by those organizations, get involved in those in a way where, you know, vir a virtual you know, kind of work integrated learning project where they get feedback and input. The idea is that the biggest critique of higher education today is the work readiness of college graduates, right? No one believes, I mean, when I say no one, I'm stretching a little, but almost no one believes that college graduates are well prepared for success in the workplace. And that's not all on the shoulders of higher ed. But when you think about what higher ed can do, it's actually some fairly simple things. It could be 
modernizing the curriculum around some of the suggestions you had, but it's also fundamentally about making sure that students have more work integrated learning experiences and have that synapse firing between what they're learning in the traditional academic sense and how they're able to apply it. And that's old school. So for example, the co-op model, yeah. you know, Northeastern and Drexel, the co-op model is a hundred years old. It is more relevant today than it's ever been because it's that interplay of application and, uh, you know, and, and, and what we would call traditional learning, right, in a more academic sense. So, you know, as we think about how this shifts into companies, one of the, the, uh, the charts in your book that I was really intrigued by is you had the top five largest companies in, in the world, or maybe it was the U.S., in 1917 and 1967. And then in 2017, and the largest in 1917 were like U.S. Steel and Standard Oil and Bethlehem Steel. You know, 67, it was like IBM, uh, Kodak, GM. And then in 2017, Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook. And you, you categorized them where you said, you know, 1917, they, you know, they were companies that extracted value like natural resources. In 1967, they were companies that made stuff fast and cheap. But this was the point that got me that all the companies in that 2017 list, you know, let's just call it modern day, uh, were what you call learn faster companies. Yeah. Tell me about learn faster. They're clearly winning right now. So what, what does it mean to learn faster as a company? Right. So the chart you just mentioned that I also use in, in uh, a lot of my talks was the really the point I wanted to make was we look at the shift from 1967 to 2017 and go, oh, OK, the 1967 was product companies or consumer companies or, you know, scalable efficiency kind of companies, as John Hagel says, to 2017, well, those are all digital companies and everybody gets focused on the tool, missing the entire point. Because I think those companies are simply learning companies and data is just an input for learning. Digital is just an easier way to capture and socialize learning. So if you think about Amazon and we're all using Amazon right now, <laughs> Amazon wants to sell you that product, not because of the product, but because they can, sell, they can learn something from you, from you buying that product, using that product. Uh, there's an Alexa around here somewhere listening to me, listening to you with that product. They get that every product is just a Trojan horse for learning more about the consumer. Um, and, you know, Shosanna Lowenson wrote about that in Surveillance Capital. I won't get into her book, but that's how we have to think about organizations. We tend to focus on the tools as opposed to the learning that could come out of it. So organizations that are doing really well are saying, okay, what did we learn from that and what's next? As opposed to how many more of those can we produce and sell? That's the wrong, see, we've got to lift our guys a little higher up on the horizon line. Fascinating. Yeah, and so, you know, one of the big stats, I know you've referenced it and written about it, I have as well. Uh, it was the IBM report that came out uh, August of last year and they do a global annual survey, and, and in that survey, um, the, one of the big findings was that the average time companies reported needing to train or upskill or reskill an employee jumped from three days in 2014 to 36 days in 2019. So in five years' time, we went more than 10x in uh, the time needed to, uh, let's just say, keep humans relevant at work. <laughs> And so, like, I, I, it's hard for me to fathom that statistic. Like, how the heck do we cope with that, right? Like, like and, and so take me into some of the recommendations that you segued to at the end of your book. Like, how do you deal with 
needed to take a whole month a year, if not more, to help people be constantly relevant in, in, their, in, their, in their workplace. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to our sort of old thinking that, that oh, so in 2013 or 14 or whatever it was, I think it was 14, you went away for three or four days, <coughs> excuse me, you went away for three or four days to get the skills you needed to stay relevant in 2014 and 2018 or 19 or whatever it was, you went away for 36 days. That's not the case. It's that you added up all the hours where learning was taking place. And fast forward to 2020, let's look at what's happened in the last 70 some odd days. Let's look at what's happened in the first 14 days. A tremendous amount of adaptation, a tremendous amount of learning. And it, lately when I've been giving my talks, which now are, are virtual for the time being, I say, stop for a second and acknowledge what you've done. My God, in 14 days, you know, it's, I know we had seven days, but I looked right. on average when I was dealing with companies and most of it, some people took a, way, a week to sort of transition, a week to get ready, and then they were alive or whatever. In the first 14 days, universities, and you and I both work with university presidents, provosts, we just talked before we came live saying, if you asked a thousand university presidents in September of 2019, could you get all of your classes online and inside of a month, 999 of them would have said no, yep. but they did it in two weeks. And faculty members who said they'd never teach online are doing it. Some hate it, some like it, some realize that they can do it. Um, right. You know, leaders that I talked to who said, you know, I just feel more comfortable if my team is in the office with me and frankly, I'm breathing on them. And now they're like, oh my God, the amount of work they're getting done in these remote distributed teams. So yeah. I say to folks, you know, whether it's four days or 36 days, the, the trajectory is going like this. So, you know, it's probably going to be, you know, 150 days soon, but really that's going to be part of work and we are capable of it. And we've shown in this virus, we're capable of it. Yeah, and I think obviously it, it means a lot of things in terms of uh, how we structure what we think of as the as the work day, right? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the shift to remote work for a lot of people, you know, that, that I mean, it's been fascinating to me to see also in a very short period of time, uh, suddenly, you know, you see an announcement from Twitter that says it's okay if you never return to the office. And I mean, even thinking across Kaplan, right? We've got we've got offices we may never reopen because the employees actually said. Uh, you know, we like working from home and, you know, this is really working, right? So you know, it's just, it's just fascinating to see that, you know, how, I'm curious, like it, this is a relatively, uh, in terms of its magnitude, right? There were clearly people working from home long before COVID and organizations that were more work from home than others. But I think there was still this traditional idea that if we're really going to meet, we really have to do that in person. Or, you know, this job is located in Denver. And if you can't move to Denver, you know, you're out, right? Like now I'm kind of thinking I, I can't come up with a job on my team that I couldn't theoretically hire anywhere in the world. And if the talent's right, fine, stay wherever you are. <laughs> so how, how much does this, you know, COVID uh, disruption, right? And it's acceleration of, of work from home and online. Like, tell me how that factors into your, what, what would you have updated anything in the book uh, yeah. to, 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 on that topic? Yeah, I would and I may end up writing for the next printing, write a new forward to it to just say that coronavirus, and I wrote this in a Forbes article, has been an accelerant to the future of work because it's accelerated our transformation to digital. Does that mean everything's going to be digital uh, in terms of remote working or all learning is going to be online? No, I don't think so. But now we know what's possible. So when we get together, we have a reason to get together and we're more intentional about it. 
Um, it was a few years ago, I think it was Brian Chesky at Airbnb was talking about how companies in the future could have like almost 100% distributed workforces and then have these intense events, just like we were talking about in universities where you take over a series of houses and you take over a WeWork space or if they're still around or whatever, and you have these intense um, summits in different parts of the world. So you get people to spend time to each other and create those social bonds and you have those in-person experiences periodically. Um, so you build up that social capital because it's not clear yet if we can build up the kind of social capital remotely that we've built up in person. So I think some of those kinds of events may happen, but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And that, you know, that's the I think that's a big challenge across the work world and, and education, right, is really now uh, being thoughtful about what parts of this really are just absolutely irreplaceable from an in-person perspective, right? And to be really crystal clear about it, you know, do I need to come to campus to hear a lecture in a lecture hall of 252 students? I don't know, right? On that one, I'd probably say, yeah, record the video, do a high quality production of it, let me watch it on my own time, and then I'd like to come in and have discussion groups with the TA, right? I'm just making this up. But, yeah. you know, so, but, but because you've also seen this question come up in the form of students who are suing universities for refunds saying, you know, this online thing, okay, but it's not what I paid for. You know, I paid for, you know, the cultural events, the sports, the residence life, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, it, it really becomes an interesting question. You know, what, what parts do we really need to continue to do in person or ideally should do in person versus what might not be, you know, necessary there? That's going to be a whole new experiment for us because we've never really, I don't think most people haven't thought about the unbundling of work or education as as crystallized as it is now that we've had this you know global pandemic experience yeah and if you look at this global pandemic so we started with you know response uh, react you know which is was go in the bunker shut everything down that you can work from home whoever can let's prep our essential workers with the right protective personal protective equipment equipment. Now we're in recovery where we're sort of starting to open up and say, you know, how many people can be in a restaurant? Can you browse in that store or campuses? You know, how, what will an in-person, when students return to campus, how many can come and will they be in courts and all that kind of stuff? What we really need to spend a lot of time, more time on is reimagine. So say the virus has subsided and we know everything we know now about what we learned from this big forced social experiment what would you build now that you know what you know from the experiences you've been through? Um, I think we're a little trapped as you were and I were discussing just before we got on this in the recovery mode to sort of say, how much can we bring back as opposed to bring forward? We're kind of like, what percentage can we bring back? And I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think it's what experiences could we have now, whether it be for students or for employees that are meaningful. Um, and from an employee standpoint, there's a lot of cost savings in a remote workforce. It's going to reshape uh, commercial real estate in some very interesting ways. It may also reshape our settlement patterns in terms of where we live mm -hmm. uh, in the United States. And if we do that, that, that may be interesting. But when we create those in-person experiences, what are we trying to do? And, and I think we should spend a lot more time on that reimagine. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, leaders have obviously been consumed with the, the here and now of, you know, uh, all the different challenges that have been presented and uh, rightfully so, right? These have not been easy things to grapple with. But you know, the degree to which, you know, we can all start to look on the horizon and think about how do we reimagine this now? Uh, I think that's great advice. And it, I, I heard a really cool story from one of my, 
one of my all-time favorite teachers, Tony Brown. He's uh, he's, he's he's in his mid seventies now and uh, still teaches a, a course at Duke. Um, and it was interesting because he, uh, you know, they, 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 the Dean of the school where he teaches had said, you know, anybody who, you know, feels like they don't want to come back to campus, you know, and attempts to reopen, you know, we'll come up with accommodations for you to teach online at home. And, you know, Tony said, okay, well, you know, because of my age, he's like, I'd, I'd prefer to teach online. And he said, and I'm so excited. He said, because I've got this whole plan for what I'm going to do with the fall. And he's like, every class, I'm going to bring in three alumni into each class on Zoom because I could never do that in person on the campus. Like, so here's Tony, right? Like reinventing the classroom because he's realized he's got an opportunity to bring in alumni. And it's easy to schedule these alumni because all they have to do is take an hour out of their day to join the class for, you know, a Zoom call. So he's got the whole semester scheduled with alumni coming in to participate in the class discussion. So I just thought, you know, it was a great example from, you know, a uh, essentially retired uh, faculty member who's all fired up about, you know, this new way that he can teach now that it's online. Yeah, that's cool. And I, in the beginning of our book, we uh, use a quote from Dan Gilbert, which I think is summarizes what you're talking about, that human beings are a work in progress that mistakenly think they're finished and that we're far better at remembering than we are at imagining. So when we come out of response to into recovery and to reimagine, we tend to look backwards and say, what can we bring forwards as opposed to let's stop, take stock and look at, as, as Tony did, what can I do now that I couldn't do before? What new opportunities does this present and how would I design this experience for folks? I think that's a brilliant place to uh, wrap things up. We're, we're all works in progress and let's figure out how to embrace that. So. So the next time we all go to a, our, our, our post-COVID cocktail reception or we uh, ask a kid a question about their future, what are the, give, give me your, give me your one-liners. What's the opening line that I need to ask people now instead of what do you do? Yeah. So Terry Gross, who's I think one of the best interviewers in the world, she just starts and says, hey, tell me about yourself. It's an open-ended question. Somebody can respond with vocational stuff. They can respond with avocational stuff. They can talk about what they're binge watching. They can go in any direction they want to. So I think that's a good way to begin. Love it. I'm going to use it. That's my new, that's my new opener. Tell me about yourself. So uh, Heather, thank you for uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and enlightening us with your work. Those of you who haven't done it, uh, get a copy of the Adaptation Advantage. Uh, it is a, uh, it's a fairly quick read. Each chapter is kind of its own self-contained set of ideas and visuals. And uh, I can see your design background coming through in the book, Heather, because there's a uh, just incredibly uh, teaching visuals uh, throughout it. So a lot of good stuff to use. Really appreciate you carving out the time today. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, syncing up here in a few months and, uh, and reconnecting on, on what you're hearing out there. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye.